Hello, everybody, and welcome to Ornate Stairwells, a movie podcast. I'm Autumn, and I'm joined as always by Neve. Hi, I'm Neve. Um, you watched movies. Yeah. I didn't watch movies. Yeah. I, real quick, looking at the spreadsheet, I've noticed that you've listed the director of Perfect Blue as Perfect Blue. <laughs> Listen, I filled that one out very late at night. Son Katoshi. <laughs> It's uh checks notes. Ten fifteen PM when you typed Son Katoshi here. I had a very <laughs> long day today. At work so like they're trying to figure out basically what the kind of work I'm gonna be doing looks like, which means that I have like probably more meetings with higher ups than will happen normally. Mm. Um and so we have a, a meeting that uh, is currently called Checkpoint 0.5 because they don't think that it will be a checkpoint. They think that there's going to be a checkpoint one. But then also we're not doing a checkpoint two because we're just kind of getting rid of what they are. Pl- it's weird. Anyway, um, I have that checkpoint 0.5 meeting on Monday pretty early and uh-huh. I had to finish a document and there's a thing that was just like needlessly time consuming mm-hmm. um, that I was working on and it just took too long. And so I was like rushing to finish it and worked kind of late today. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's just been like a very busy week Yeah, for that stuff. I kind of deliberately chose not to watch movies this week. Yeah. There were, I'm surprised that I watch as many movies as I did. A fair number of them are TV movies that I didn't really care that much about because mm-hmm. I figured I could put them on while I'm working on spreadsheets and things. But there were at least two occasions where I thought about putting on a movie and decided against it because I am just enjoying being in my Star Trek hole and my manga hole. Um, yeah. I um, finished, quote unquote, Chainsaw Man. Um, you haven't started the new arc, right? No, I have not started the new arc. I'm not going to read one page of it until it's done. And I don't care if that's ten years from now. I'm not going to read it until it's done. Um, I tried half-assing keeping up with original run Chainsaw Man, and it, like... A lot of things killed my enjoyment of Chainsaw Man, um... But, like, my own, like, I'm going to try and keep up and then not really committing to it, like, also contributed to it. Um, Chainsaw Man's all right. Yeah. That's, like, the... That's, like, in the Naruto pile is, like, a three-star manga that might hit, like, a five-star, like, volume here or there. It might have, like, a moment that's, like, oh, damn, they really pulled out all the stops. Yeah. For, the, for the most part, it's, like, oh, that's all right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, other manga I've been reading. Um, read a little more Rosa for Side on a ton. That's like a very slow read, and it's very rewarding. Like it is really fucking good, but it's like pretty slow. Um, and so there's some nights where I'm like, I want to be able to log in my Goodreads that I finished something, <laughs> so I'm not gonna read. Yeah. Um, not manga, but I also read a bunch of Usagi Jimbo, which is really good. Yeah. Um. And otherwise, I'm just still in start season three of Star Trek, uh, or season three of TNG. I guess I should be specific yeah. in case somebody. I can imagine the person who's like, 
I don't really listen to this podcast, but they're covering uh, Millennium Actress. I'll hop in. I've been watching TNG for the first time, and I'm just obsessed with it. So, yeah, um, season three has been really good. <laughs> um, it's very funny because last time I think I talked a little bit about Deep Space Nine, mm-hmm. um, and then Emma was like, "You're spoiling it." And I'm like, "It's on it." Like, I think people know it's on a space station. <laughs> I, there was like one episode that I kind of talked about, but like, I guarantee whatever you said about Deep Space yeah. Nine. I've dumped it out of my brain. Today I watched some clip. I briefly like talked about a few characters and I'm sure that you just don't even remember them. No. Today I I literally watched like YouTube recommended me a two minute video like why Captain Sisko is the best captain. And it's just like a two minute scene from Deep Space Nine. I watched it. Absolutely. Already don't remember what happened. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think Sisko chewed someone out maybe. Yeah. I well, imagine like, he does that a lot. <laughs> you, you, when I was talking about Berserk, talked about characters that you thought I would like. I don't, rem- I think I've met, I'm meeting one of them right now. Who'd you meet? I don't remember her name. Cause it's just at the part where like, she gets like kidnapped. She's like Is part she... of the like Pope's army okay. or whatever. Okay. Yeah. You're going to like her. Yeah. You're going to really like her. She does seem a little bit bratty maybe. I feel a little like bit, a little bit. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, I hadn't thought about the brat angle on Farnese. Yeah, you're gonna yeah, like Farnese. her. Yeah, Far- some people say Farnese. I say uh, Farnese. Uh, I don't know. I I would have to look at whatever the Japanese. Yeah, and give me a a better clue. I think. Well, that that not might... that that always fully is accurate. <laughs> this is the thing that we talked about when we were doing Gakano. Well, yeah, but like. There's still ways that that can point you towards whatever the, like, English name would be. Mm. Um, but, like, when we did um, Bacchano, we talked about, like, because there's, like, Zillard, and that's what they say in the English dub, and it's, like, a Hungarian name. Mm-hmm. And then in, like, uh, Japanese, it's, like, Shilad or something, because it's just, like, yeah, a combination of phonetics are so different, and then also whoever came up with the names may not be familiar with like the actual Hungarian name. They just looked up, Oh, what's a guy who worked on the atom bomb? <laughs> right. Um, so. the berserk wiki is maddening because they, I think almost exclusively go by the katakana, um, which leads to maddening things like Gatsu, um, and, uh, calling it like the Beherit. Um, which is just like, yeah, uh, (laughs) it's just not what that word is supposed to be. You're being obtuse if you call it that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I forget what wiki it was that I found where it was like serial experiments lane. And then like in parentheses, the like Japanese serial experiments (laughs) rain. (laughs) And I was just like. No. <laughs> Desu Noto. <laughs> um, Haosu is one of the only ones where I sometimes do this. Haosu I do because there's two reasons. One, there's other movies called House. And two, I think it's funny when the man at the start of the movie goes, Haosu. I just yeah. think that's funny. <laughs> and so I also <laughs> say Haosu. <laughs> um, also for me, it, like it's from... I feel like English titles became more common in a lot of Japanese media, mm. but when House came out, it was not as common. And so, like, literally every time it's listed, if you go to 
uh, Japanese Wikipedia, it lists the like official title as like house and then in parentheses in uh, katakana hausu. Mm-hmm. And they don't do that with other movies that are like Japanese movies with English titles. Yeah. They specifically do it with that, and every single poster has the, the katakana on it. Yeah. Um. Anyway. So tell me about the movies you watched this week. Yeah. Oh, I've, by the way, I've barely scratched the surface of any more Berserk. Just like, fine. I just kind of made a little bit more progress into like a volume. Um, but I just had this moment where like, I was just struggling to read. Yeah. I think in general, and then also specifically Berserk, because... I was I did at one point this week advise you, take a break from Berserk. You're, it's not hitting for you. You know, go read two volumes of something else, come back to Berserk. Yeah. I want to, like, get through the arc that I'm in, and maybe one, like, you know, kind of, not like full yeah, giant arc. But you've got like, a lot of conviction left, so... Yeah. But I just want to start to see some of the, like... RPG party assemble. You're which pretty, I'm like basically there. I you're think. pretty close to Isidro showing up, which will be good because then there will be two comedy relief characters, which makes Puck less cringe, IMO. Yeah. When 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 Puck has ang- angry red haired child to bounce off of, the both of them are better for it. So Yeah. <clears throat> um but now I'm Honestly, sometimes I'll just start reading it, and then I'm just, like, thinking about Nana and fall asleep. <laughs> That's so valid. You're so valid. Um. Anyway, movies that I watched. Yeah. So, uh, one, I watched A Storm in Summer, which is that movie that we found on last episode. Right. Uh, the last movie directed by Robert Wise, um, starring Peter Falk, um, and, like... Basically, I had an impression when I saw the first image of it, and I was like, that looks a little racist. And yeah. then I was like, Peter Falk was in it. And I'm like, well, maybe I'll just watch this because I like Peter Falk. Actual, real-life angel-turned-human Peter Falk. Yeah. Um, And it was still basically racist in the ways that I was expecting it to be. Um, It's an extremely... This is like a very... I feel like people know this... this um, like stereotype or this like type of of white person but there's a very specific version of it in chicago which is the uh i taught for a year on the south side and those kids taught me more than i taught them but there's plenty of variants of this what's the um but like uh a black child from the inner city comes to this like uh you know kind of quaint uh all white basically town uh, there's a curmudgeonly old man, old Jewish man, because mm-hmm. there's lots of talk about like the persecution that uh, both like black people and Jews face in America mm-hmm. as part of it. Um, and, you know, they make in the same way that so I ended up thinking about Pawnbroker a lot when I was watching this. Oh, interesting. Because Pawnbroker is also about like a a. Jewish man who seems to have lost faith with like humanity in general Mm -hmm. and then has to confront how like his general kind of hatred of humanity is also like enabling him to like turn his back on other people who are facing oppression and suffering. Yeah. Um, 
But Pawnbroker does it really well and has like a, a very like a heavy ending uh-huh. um, that feels like it is just like acknowledging the weight of these these topics to grapple and not saying that there's a solution to it. Yeah. Whereas a Storm in Summer thinks that the solution is that an inner city can from like, you know, Chicago or whatever goes to this like all white neighborhood and then uh, teaches an old man to love again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they get to like stick their, their noses up at the country club. Yeah. A little bit. This so. has reminded me of something that I wanted to like ask. I wanted to ask listeners a question. I didn't think to ask listeners until now, but it reminded me of something. I was having a conversation with somebody at work and I made an offhand reference to driving Miss Daisy and the specific ways in which driving Miss Daisy is racist. And this coworker who I think is like 21 or 22 um, is like, what are you talking about? And I was like, Driving Miss Daisy, famous movie, Driving Miss Daisy. And they're like, I've never heard of this. And I'm like, how have you never heard of Driving Miss Daisy? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, have you seen The Blind Side? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, it's the same movie, basically. (laughs) Um, Anyway, Zoomers, please write into the podcast and let me know if referencing Driving Miss Daisy is too dated or if... I just was with a culturally unaware coworker. This is also the coworker who one time asked me if I know what Naruto is or if I'm too old for that. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, I in general I was not that big of a fan of this movie. The the uh, acting is like better than you sometimes get with TV movies. Um, I wonder why. Because the main characters who you uh, interact with, I should look up the, like, I, I looked into if, um, the actor who plays the boy, um, went on to do some things and it was mostly just TV stuff. Like it seemed like he didn't have much of a career beyond being like a child actor and some stuff. Mm. Um, but Aaron Meeks, um, who, so the, you know, one of the big things. Um, I thought, th- <laughs> I thought this was saying he was in Ali, but no, he is in Ali, an American hero, which is a, a TV two- film. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Like here, it says best known for his role is um, Ahmad Chadway uh, on the Showtime. I don't know if I'm saying that name correctly, mm-hmm. but on the Showtime television series Soul Food. Okay. Um, but yeah, like the um, lady who who works, who's like basically organizing this, uh, I, I guess, charity thing or whatever. I don't know how you would describe this. Mm-hmm. Foster program or something. Okay. Um, she's played by Natasha Kinski. And then Peter Falk is the old Jewish man. And so those three actors all do decent performances. They're kind of being allowed to like ham it up for TV. Yeah. In a way um, that like I've seen Peter Falk give better performances. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I, I, I don't think I would really recommend it as a thing that like, if you want 
if if any of this sounds interesting, just go watch Pawnbroker. <laughs> like, it's a much much better movie, and I know it's like an actual film. And not a TV movie that, like, a director's making at the very end of his life. But uh-huh. Also, like, you know, if you're like, oh, I would like to watch Peter Falk in this. You have co- episodes There's, of Columbo yeah. that you haven't seen. There was a part where I was, like, towards the end of this where I was like, I could have just been watching Columbo the entire time and had more fun. <laughs> There's, like, a um, hundred plus episodes of... Yeah. Col- just go watch Columbo. It's great. Um... I have not seen that much Columbo. I've seen like 10 episodes of Columbo. Yeah. Which is like, on the one hand... That might be more than me. I don't know. If you think about 10 90-minute movies, I've seen a lot of Columbo movies. Mm. But when you compare that to how many Columbo movies they made, it is a scratch in the surface. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah... The the one other thing that's funny, so we found the little detail when we were looking at it. I don't know if that was on the podcast or, or after, um, but that the script was written uh, by Rod Serling. Right. In yes. like 1970. Yes. And they did not change the script at all. <laughs> and it's funny because it is so clearly a movie set in the 70s, but now it's just become this period thing where everyone's wearing, like, a little bit too obviously 70s costumes and stuff. <laughs> um, they go see, like, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid at one point. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so that That's was that was probably the part that I found the most entertaining watching it was just... Knowing that this was just supposed to be set in the present day, and now all of this stuff has become references to the 70s. Yeah. Um, in a way where, like, if you told me it was supposed to be, like, reminding you that it's set in the 70s as a period thing, I would believe you. But no, it was just written this way. <laughs> um, but unsurprising for something written by Rod Serling, it was incredibly moralizing at the end and kind of... Weird politics. Right. Rod Serling? Yeah. They blew it up? Yeah. <laughs> um, Damn it all to hell, they blew it up? <laughs> not as fun as an episode of Twilight Zone. Like, those, yeah. There's some like weird charm to them. The, the, the thing about the Twilight Zone, it, I've seen a, a good amount of Twilight Zone. I've seen a lot of Twilight Zone. Um, the thing about it is there's a lot of duds in there. There's a lot of real stinkers. It doesn't matter because when Twilight Zone hits, it hits. You yeah, know? <laughs> and you're not gonna remember the bad ones. <laughs> um, so who cares? Anyway, so I watched this movie and I was thinking, man, the pawnbroker. But I watched the pawnbroker like last Yule. Uh huh. Um. So I didn't want to just immediately go and watch that again. Uh. But I was like, it's been a while since I've watched Twelve Angry Man. Uh, men. And Jesus, what a movie that is! What a movie. It's a fucking good movie. Um, yeah, yeah. If, if people don't know the plot of 12 Angry Men, it's mostly like a parlor drama, mm-hmm. I guess you classify it as, where, so it just starts with 12 jurors enti- entering the, like, room where they have to discuss things. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the movie, there there is a moment at the end, which I'll get to, um, but most of the movie takes place in that room. Um, and it's basically just all them talking. It's, it's really heavy on the like actor performances. Yeah. Um, 
Not saying that there aren't some like decently framed shots here, but the the it point was, of it is seeing people act. It's it's written originally as a like play for TV, I think. Back when that yeah. was a thing of just like oh, TV's new, what do we do? We're just going to broadcast people doing plays. You know. Yeah. yeah, this is something you could very easily do on a stage. Yeah. Um has been done many times on a stage, probably yes. not as good. <laughs> um but yeah, and uh, essentially it's a murder case. Um, most people just kind of want to go home and they feel convinced by the the case that the boy killed his father and is guilty. Um, and then one man who has this real all shucks personality uh, played by Henry Fonda in an extremely Henry Fonda role. Henry Fonda basically enters that movie with a halo around him. Yes. <laughs> Um, and it has the most like, you know, I could be wrong, but I think it's our duty mm-hmm. as jurors to really think about this concept of like with reasonable doubt. Yeah. And I just right now don't know whether or not I even have a reasonable doubt, mm-hmm. but I might have a reasonable doubt and I just want us to talk about it. Yeah. Um, and as they talk about it, he seems to be like becoming more and more convinced, or maybe he always was, and he's just always been. There's someone who's like a salesman and is like, "You work as a salesman?" And I, I think he says like, "No, architect or something." And he's like, "Well, uh, there's this technique called the soft sell, and boy, you got it." <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and then it's just like him gradually winning people over. So yeah, one of the big like. I feel like this gets referenced a lot too. Yeah. This movie. Um, and like one of the big references is the part where, cause they do the vote at the beginning and he's the only one who says not guilty. Hmm. Um, and then he, when they're going to do the second vote, he's like, I don't want us to do raising our hands for this one. Let's write and do secret ballot like anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to abstain. And if there's like a single not guilty, then we'll continue. Otherwise I'll just say guilty too. And we'll go back out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then going through and it's like the second to last one is not guilty or whatever. Yeah. You know? And then that's like the, the beginning. Of I forgot he turning. abstains. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Um, I, I once read a review of this movie. That's like, actually this is a movie about how fucked up the justice system is where you can get away with anything as long as one person believes you. And I'm like, you didn't watch the movie, no. my friend. <laughs> the, 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 this movie is about how the, the way in which this movie is maybe about how the justice justice system is fucked up is that people don't take their civic duty of being a juror seriously enough. Mm-hmm. And you need to have the like people in there who are taking it seriously. Cause then essentially, you know, it starts with him being like, boy, I was thinking like, if I was that boy, I would want a, a better attorney than that. Like, I feel like there's lots of like holes and stuff that he, he didn't, that like attorney didn't, mm-hmm. uh, you know, push at. And then he basically just become like the, the secret of this yeah. is that it is a courtroom drama, yeah, basically. but it's a bunch of men. It's a bunch of jurors. They're all men yeah, in a room. And because of that, you can have even more than within like a courtroom drama, just people yelling at each other. Cause well, within and- the courtroom drama, you need the like certain amount of like a judge is going to like bang the gavel at some point. Yes. Well, and, um, if you, if you cast Henry Fonda as the defense attorney in that, that sort of like makes him de facto right 
mm-hmm. and the moral center of the movie. Whereas the movie by being jurors and we didn't get to see the case as it was presented does introduce some ambiguity to it. That is interesting. You know, yes. um, yeah. you begin uh, uncovering things that came up in the trial because they are discussing it. Yes. But it, some of it comes out of order. Right. Um, there are things that like only get revealed to you because it's like, Oh, that reminded me. I just remember this thing about her testimony. Um, and it's like, you didn't see that. There's no chance that you as the audience member would see it. It's right. entirely incumbent on like a character telling you. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, the acting in it is fantastic. Um, Can I tell you a little autumn trivia fact that I know about this movie? Sure. So Sydney Lumet, um, Prior... Oh, I think you've told me this one before. But tell Maybe it. I have, yeah. So this is... Um, he is a TV director. This is his first film, or his first feature film. Um, And a thing that you'll do in TV to save time and money is, like, if you have the north, south, east, west walls of a set, you know, you'll shoot everything on the east wall, like... So that you have to adjust the lighting and the camera setup as little as possible. And then you'll shoot everything on like the north wall and the, you know, you'll go around. Um, which means that like Sydney the Met described like the hardest thing about making 12 Angry Men was that like we go through the whole movie and then like, but you only got like half the scenes basically on this wall. And then you had to like go to the other wall and have like actors sort of like matching each other's performances that the other guy had given last week, you yeah. know? Um, and he, <clears throat> he talked in his book about how much he's like, you got to fucking rehearse movies. You got to all sit down at the table and like read the damn script. And then you got to do it again and again and again. And he's like, that movie taught me that because like we, I don't know how we would have done that if, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the thing that uh, is incredible. I mean, he did a lot of TV before this, mm-hmm. but this like for his first feature film is just like, damn. Yeah, that man came out swinging. <laughs> I, I'm a huge fan of his. Um, there's a like four or five of his movies that I would call just like stone cold classics, like five stars, no qualifications. Um, his first movie might be the best one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Like, he might have just, like, nailed it the first time. <laughs> um, anyway, so the thing that has a, has happened uh-huh. because of this is... So I watched this, and I, I realized... Because at first I kind of forgot that this was, like, his first feature film. Mm-hmm. Um, I even looked being like, did he do TV films first? And no. This is his first, like, film. Oh, really? I think everything else was, like, show stuff. Huh. Um. And so, uh, also, I don't know if this is still true, but when I was a kid, my my dad said that his favorite director was Sidney Lumet. Um, and, you know, I watched most of the, the Lumet that I've seen mm-hmm. because of him mm-hmm. um, when I was a kid. That's, like, when I first watched it. Um, and so I was like, this is the beginning. What if I just watch through <laughs> all of his features? There's some good ones. Um, and then you're like gonna hit the '90s, and you're gonna be like, "I regret this," but like until then, you're gonna be fine. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, there's like, I mean, I, I tried to find the second one and I think I'm gonna have to do ILL like interlibrary loan for some of this stuff. Oh man. Cause I just can't That's find rough. it online unless people like know a place, but like the That's places rough. that I go just don't even have like, it's not even like the torrent is dead. It's just, there's not anything there. Yeah. And I look on letterbox and it's like 200 people have watched it and I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, this is this is me hunting down weird obscre- yeah. <laughs> obscure Japanese movie territory. People already know Morino Ishimatsu. Yeah. <laughs> um, some of those are even less, but um, yeah. But yeah, so I'm still gonna try. Yeah. Um. Anyway, do you have any more? Oh, I should do stairs. Yeah, do the stairs. So Storm and Summer, I think, is an F. I don't remember any stairs in that. Maybe there were. Mm-hmm. Maybe I missed them. But it's like mostly sets where they. I don't think they would do that. Uh, Twelve Angry Men. So I just talked to you a bunch about how it all takes place in this room, right? Yeah. A fucking plus. The very end of the movie, they go out of the like courthouse uh-huh. Uh-huh. and they. You see like all the jurors like spreading out. There's you know the old man juror. Yeah. Uh, shakes. Um. Fonda's hand and is like they exchange names. Yeah. Um, and then you get him walking down, uh, feel it like I would say less triumphant and more just like um content with himself or something. Uh-huh. And then you get the one holdout juror who till the very end yeah. is still saying guilty. That guy um, is an incredible actor. Yes, he's really good. And at the, like the very final moments is you get him further in the distance starts walking down. Mm-hmm. Basically all the other jurors are gone and he's just like this like plotting step. Um I'm trying to remember his and name. It's a great fucking scene. I feel like I saw him once in like a death of a movie of Death of a Salesman or something, um, which Death of a Salesman is fucking awful, but I remember him being really good in it. <laughs> yeah, no, he he's excellent in this. I'm trying maybe, to um, I may be able to pull it up faster. Because you'll know, like... Lee J. Cobb, right. Um, oh, yeah, he's in On the Waterfront. He's really good in that. Yeah. Um, um, man, On the Waterfront's one hell of a movie. Um, he's in a bunch of old movies. Isn't he an like... exorcist? Apparently. Man. Oh, yeah, he's also in a in a Death of a Salesman movie. Oh, um, he was in Party... He was in Party Girl. He was the big mobster in Party Girl. Oh. Which I watched, uh, what, two weeks ago? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, no, he he was really good. Honestly, like, I feel like most actors are at least as good as their part needs them to be. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. Some have smaller parts, but I feel like they cast it really well. Yeah. So, um, there's no actor who would be like, they weren't good. Yeah. There's some where they had a small part and it's not as memorable, but it's like, eh. Yeah. You, you cast the them job. For the, yeah. Um, anyway, I also watched two other. Well, actually, I don't know if this one was a TV movie. It has the vibes, though. Mm-hmm. I We're going to go behind the curtain to the adult section here for a little <laughs> bit. We're going to start with the one that I found less interesting, uh, which was Call Me. Uh, this is directed by uh, Solis Mitchell, I think is how you say his name. Um, and uh, this may have been a film. But so the basic plot is like it starts with this uh, woman who's a journalist 
She's in her apartment. Um, her boyfriend's gone. She gets a phone call, and it's kind of a like horny phone call being like oh i want to fuck you and stuff (laughs) um and she thinks that it's her boyfriend or as it kind of goes on i think it's suggested that like she wants it to be her boyfriend she wants someone to like have this kind of fascination with her Uh uh because really her boyfriend is just like an extremely boring man Uh extremely boring uh does not seem to really care about her, is going to, like, for work, go on a trip around the world and is not taking her. Mm-hmm. Um, stuff like that. Because uh, he's a food writer. Mm. Uh, and he's going to do this thing where he's going to go around the world and eat fast food. He's going to, like, eat Taco Bell in China or whatever. That's dumb. Yeah. I mean, if you're like, I'm going to go to Taco Bell or I'm going to go to China... You better, like, Taco Bell be, better be like, ah, oh, we're doing one gimmick stop in between our five good restaurants that we're going to. <laughs> no, the whole thing is just eating fast Dis- food. It's just vile. Disgusting. Yeah. Um, Hateful. I'm sure there are people who have made their career out of this because it's like, oh, they have, like, falafels on the McDonald's men- menu. And, I'm like, sure this is a thing that people do. I'm just like, yeah. why... Why is this the only point of the trip? Uh, yeah. That's the thing that's bothering me. Yeah. Anyway, he's an extremely boring man, is what I'm saying. Yes. Um, and, uh, but, and, is so the, the phone call that she gets at the very beginning is like, meet me at this bar without panties on, basically. Mm-hmm. And she goes to the bar, um, sees this, like, very shady looking guy who... Uh, I think tries to buy her a drink or something. Um, and then she goes to the bathroom because she's feeling a little... She's like, wait, was this the guy who called me? What's going on? Right. I thought it was my boyfriend. Um, goes to the bathroom. And then in the bathroom, when this is a murder... Oh, um, okay. Yes. <laughs> uh, specifically a murder of... The, the movie primarily says transvestite. Um, but also she's very good about pronouns because she basically always says she, there's one part where she's like, maybe he, but cause, and they're like, you don't know. And then she's like, just continues to do she, even after it's revealed that it was like a transvestite. But anyway, um, yeah, there's a part where it's just like, oh, it's a movie from 88 of the year I was born. Of course, it's going to be about like someone like me getting murdered. Yeah. Um, this but, Skinamax movie said you are valid, though. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> it is just weird for the 88 how good she is about pronouns overall. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, the the trans woman, before she is murdered by a police officer, uh, throws money out the window uh, to a character who's only ever referred to as Switch or Switchblade because he carries around a Switchblade, but is, much to my surprise, played by Steve Buscemi, at, what, at which point I texted you, oh my god, it's Steve Buscemi, completely without context. Because <laughs> this is what I do sometimes. Yeah, I appreciate um, it. I enjoy he, it. He is weirdly the best actor in this entire movie for someone who's kind of a bit role. I, I'm shocked that Steve Buscemi showed up and acted circles around people. It's not yeah. like he does that in feature <laughs> <Yes>. films constantly. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, the, the plot continues on. Uh, essentially what's happening is Steve Buscemi, 
has the money, but now understands that the other guy who's the shitty guy who it was in the bar, mm-hmm. um, like wants the money, but thinks that sh- the reporter lady has it. Um, the reporter lady is convinced that the shady guy is this guy who's just like stalking her and wants calling her on the phone and wants to have sex with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's very uninterested in her boyfriend. There's many other scenes. Um, I'm going to kind of spoil this cause I just don't feel like people are going to end up. No, watching one, no one's going to watch this. Um, there's like, the plot starts getting like kind of confusing about what, exactly what's going on. Who is the man on the phone? Is it this man? It actually is like becoming increasingly likely it's not. And it is revealed that it is her friend. Uh, this like guy friend that she has who has been calling her. Um, there's a part where they have phone sex and it's the, the primary erotic scene. But then later on they have real sex. And when they have real sex, she realizes that it is him calling and not the shady guy. <laughs> and she becomes deeply upset that it, she did not have phone sex with the shady guy. Okay. Um, and then the movie kind of has to revol- resolve all of its like plot threads. But really the thing that feels like the heart of this, this movie's doing too much, mm-hmm. I think is my biggest problem with it. Um, because I think the one thing that's kind of interesting that's happening in here is it like exploring how there's this fantasy she has about having like this kind of wild, dangerous sex. That's like phone sex, but then also there's the the real man, but she can like, continue to like foil him in real life um which she's is succeeding at but then also have like this pleasure over the phone um that she's not getting from her boyfriend Mm. uh and then kind of once the reality of everything she has to like confront it then she's like oh all this sucks (laughs) (laughs) that man actually just wants to kill me he's not like a sexy shady man stalking me that i'm kind of into he just literally wants to kill me because he thinks that i have the money um and the guy who's been calling me to have phone sex is just this guy who in real life is like too much of a pussy to like actually let me know okay how he feels okay um and is just doing this because he like won't actually do anything else about it yeah um but a lot of it kind of just, like, it didn't fully land, and I, I feel like it was just trying to do too much. Mm-hmm. Um, but it did have some similarities with the other, honestly, far steamier and more sensual. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was made for TV, was, like, full Skinamax, uh, you know, softcore, <clears throat> uh, like, base, verging on porn. Mm-hmm. Um, which was Lake Consequence, uh, which does start. So let me, let me pull up the full cast. Um, but uh, the the big one here, I feel like the like the thing that most people would really like. The reason why this is oh, notable is right. that Billy Zane is the the hot guy. Um, <laughs> short. This is um, what the movie came out in. I think ninety two. So like shortly after Twin Peaks. Uh huh. Um, and then, uh, the, the main woman, uh, Irene, it's also funny. Billy Zane's character in the movie is just Billy. 
Oh, good. Um, okay. But so then Irene is played by uh, Joan Severance. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of has a similar like plot, honestly, but it's just so much more like in, in terms of like the core that I was talking about in the other one, the thing that I think was kind of interesting, but this is like so much more about it and understanding that. Which is, so the plot of it is that um, Joan Severance is this MILF named Irene. Uh, we start off seeing, like, her with her husband and kid. Um, and then she hears this guy cutting, like, you know, chainsaw outside, goes to yell at him. It's a hot Billy Zane, um, just shirtless up in the tree. Uh, she was mad because the city wanted to cut down all the trees. And she fought against it and then, like, won in the end. Um, and she thought that he was there cutting the trees, but he wasn't. He was just like doing the maintenance work where, you know, they take off some of the limbs. Yeah. Uh, high up. Um, and so she yells at him and he's like kind of into it mm-hmm. being yelled at by a MILF. Um, Who wouldn't be? Yeah. And she's kind of into it seeing this like young, hot, shirtless man up in with the a tree. chainsaw. With a chainsaw. <laughs> um, and essentially then it develops into like at night she goes out to the trailer cause he's doing the work, but doesn't like normally he doesn't like live around here. Um, and you know, smokes a cigarette is just wearing the like most, it's like a sweater that like goes up around the neck, you know, like it's not like actually boobs out, but it's just that kind of thin material where yeah. it's just clear that she's not wearing a bra and her boobs are just out even though the sweater's fully covering them. You're right. Um and the MILF sweater, I believe yes. you described it as. Yes. Um and it's kind of like enticing him a little bit and then he's like, oh it was like these kinds of bugs that were attacking the tree. I can actually give you this like larva for this moth that if you put around like under the bark, it will go and eat the bugs and then fly away and it'll take care of the pest problem, but it won't hurt the trees and you won't have to cut them down. Um, so he fixes the problem for her. Um, and then essentially, they so, fuck? well, so she goes to like maybe fuck him and also to thank him for that later. Uh, goes into the trailer hoping to find him, but in fact, he's in the front and is driving home. And so she gets in it, and then he, like, and she's, like, looking around the trailer, and he, like, closes it, locks it, gets in the front, and doesn't hear her being like, I'm in here, until they get all the way to this lake, mm-hmm. where uh, he and his, like, swinger bisexual girlfriend live. Uh... Um, and then she... There's some, like, general uh, steaminess, but then there's this part where they go to Chinese New Year in the city, um, and they go to, like, this spa, and then that's where you have the really big sex scene. Okay. With all three of them. Okay. Um, But then the girlfriend, and, like, he, Billy ends up fucking the girlfriend more than her, and then she gets all jealous and tries to burn the place down. <laughs> Which is kind of Skinamax movie logic. The other thing that I got hung up on for a while is they kept talking about Chinese New Year and going to this party, but it was in between, like, some kind of steamy stuff happened and then the actual big sex scene that I'm talking about. Uh So there's a good, like, 10, 15 minutes of them just talking about Chinese New Year and also it being summer, and I was like, this... 
I just got hung up on it not making sense. Chinese New Year's in the winter. This is not said in Australia. <laughs> um, what are you looking at? Uh, so it just mentioned that the music for this movie was George, done by George S. Clinton, and I was like George Clinton, and then I'm like, no, not not that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, you just came in here, you old I dumb know. old cat. Um. Anyway, then he's like, oh, I ended up going with her more because I became kind of afraid of how much I wanted you. Uh-huh. Um, but then she's like, I just have to like go home. My, my husband's on like a fishing trip with my son, but like, I gotta go home. Um, and then it just becomes having to like fate, like come to terms with the consequence of like, Oh, I wanted this like steamy thing, but now yeah. there's like all this stuff around it that I have to deal with. Yeah. And I kind of don't want to deal with it. I thought I was just doing like a fantasy and it turns out my life is still. I may have like ruined my wife because, or my life because I love my husband and kids still. Yeah. Um, very and different. And the husband's like, just invite me next time. Very <laughs> different than, uh, call me where like the husband or the boyfriend just absolutely sucks. Uh-huh. Uh, here the husband seems genuine, genuinely good. He just doesn't fuck her enough. That's like the only problem. I'm going to um, take his face off. Uh, anyway, the, the part where I truly, one, I knew this was for the mills because, uh, every time that there's a sex scene, it starts with Billy Zane going down on a girl, which <laughs> <laughs> is just like, okay, the, you you know who you're like trying to entice with this movie. Yeah, um, I'm not saying that there aren't also lots of tits for the the guys in the audience, but um, for the you know, fellas, the fellas. I'm specifically <laughs> doing the because the this is still conceiving of things in a very heterosexual yeah, way. Yeah, totally. Um, but anyway, the part that I was also this is truly for the mills is that you get to the end and she just goes home and she's standing on the stairs. Uh, to the family home. She's been like having a breakdown in the, the bedroom and everything. Uh, she goes down to the stairs and it just like welcomes the husband home and is like, Oh, did you catch any fish to the, the like kid? And just like in that moment, just like fully goes back into the role and can forget it for also. There's a weird part at the end of this movie where she's trying to overcome her trauma of like being raped as a teen. And then her parents blaming her for it. Okay. Which is also, this is like a, for a woman audience, yeah. I think. Um, but I ended up enjoying it for what it was. I mean, if you look at my letterbox review, I don't think it's that high, but like, I'm like my rating, but like for one of these, for, I just have weird affection for these kinds of like weird, softcore erotic movies. Uh-huh. Uh, this one was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. It like understood the scope. Yeah. Which is a thing that you can't always say about these movies. So, um, and it was like able to like still tell a bit of a story that uh, had some like emotional interest in it. Can you give me stairwell ratings for this and for Call Me? Uh, so for Call Me, I do remember some stairs, but I not well enough that I feel good doing an actual rating. Uh-huh. Um, so I just put question marks for late consequence. I did a C plus. I could maybe push this up to a B minus, but it was still suburban home stairs that she was standing on. But uh-huh. the, the big, like final moment of the film is her standing on the stairs and, um, 
like getting her life back in a way where um, I was afraid that this movie was going to punish her Mm. and it doesn't. She just is able to like overcome it and just be like, I'm, I'm the wife and mom again. I have my little fantasy and now it's over. I love that for her. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Truly winning. Um, The next thing on the spreadsheet is serial experiments lane. I just wanted to rate the stairs. Yeah, we're about to do this for Ghost Divers. I have not seen the last episode yet as we uh, are recording. Um, But we're going to do Ghost Divers about it tomorrow. And I'm going to squeeze in that last episode before we do. Um, But yeah, let's just do a stairwell rating. This is an S, right? This is like an easy S. Like, this is like we don't even have to talk about this. Yeah. It's an S if it was only stairs in the OP. Yes. (laughs) Um, And like, there's important stairs in the final episode. I've seen many important but stairs already. But there's also already. many important stairs already. Yeah. Um, including just, like, the one into the family home, which is just, like, very... Like, this is the one that's getting giving us the real aesthetic rating. Uh-huh. But there's also lots of stuff that happens around the family home stairs, which is this kind of, like, you know, almost suburban home vibe. Uh-huh. But there is a transformation that happens to it in, like, the 12th episode or something. Okay. Um, you, I think you've seen it. Maybe I have. Uh, is like it the... Alice goes up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, home. yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like all of that is us. Yeah. There's so many stairs in the There's lane. There's so many stairs in the lane. I'm like... Ghost Divers isn't coming out for a little while. Yeah. I will tell you, the listener right now, not having seen the last episode yet, I'm like kind of low on lane. I like it. Um... But I am having trouble with, like, it hasn't hit for me, you know? Yeah. Um, And so it'll be an, an, it'll be an interesting Ghost Divers tomorrow. Um, and um, regardless of how I feel about, like, the show holistically, just focusing in on the stairwells, S. Yeah. Fantastic stairs. I just realized... Is one of the big, because there's episode twelve ends, and then episode thirteen like completes some of what's happening there. Like you kind of almost get a cliffhanger. Yeah, and then there's a little bit more, and then there's like a different thing that happens, and that I just think of as episode thirteen, and I realize that there's a little bit of like what I conceive of in my head as episode twelve mm. that you haven't seen. Yeah. That is also part of what I love about this series. So we'll see. We'll see if the episode changes I would have, at all. I would have liked to watch both, but I watched three episodes today, and the show is just slow and sad a lot of the time. And I was like, yeah. I can't do four episodes. I can't. I can't. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Well, that last one's especially slow and sad. So, so. yeah. Um. The final one that I have here, which uh, I put these out of order just to have some thematic through line. Yeah. But um, it is Perfect Blue, which I watched because um, we were deciding between doing Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress. You decided Millennium Actress because you hadn't seen it before. Um, And I was like, I kind of also want to like whichever one we didn't pick, I probably would have watched on my own. Oh, anyway. So, um, I watched Perfect Blue, um, best movie ever made. It's really fucking good. Um, some might describe it as 
it's not this, my it's not actually my favorite movie, but it's really fucking good. Some might describe it as like the second best Satoshi Kon film. It, are you saying that Millennium Actress you like more than Perfect Blue? I might be saying that. I think I like Perfect Blue more. I, I understand. I'm like absolutely like I one hundred percent get it. I'm yeah. just like maybe it, the the actual thing is I think Perfect Blue is like second best and either Millennium Actress or Tokyo Godfathers is the best one. The thing is so I I think I still believe in my heart that Perfect Blue is the best mm-hmm. like Konsatoshi movie. Yeah. But also I just have to acknowledge that within my life like Tokyo Godfathers is my Yule movie. Yeah, that you're going to watch every year. Yes. I have watched it so many more than any other movie that he's done. Uh-huh. Which isn't that many, but... Yeah. Um, And so even though I don't... Like, even if you just asked me normally, what's your favorite movie that he's done? Uh-huh. I would probably say Perfect Blue. Because you just think of Tokyo Godfather separately. Yeah, but also in a weird... Like, I just have to acknowledge the reality that, like... The actions of my life say it's Tokyo Godfathers. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I watched the first five minutes of Perfect Blue and I'm already like, this yeah. is the perfect movie. Yeah, this perfect, is the greatest movie perfect ever made. Perfect Blue, <laughs> truly one of the greatest movies ever made. I was very much taken with Millennium Actress. So yeah. anyway, talk about Perfect Blue a little bit. Um, Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I feel like in some ways it's become like his most well-known one. Yeah, I feel um, like Paprika was the one for a while. Yeah, that's true. Paprika, I think, still holds some. But I also feel like there was like a little bit more of a turn where I don't know if people now... I feel like now people will then just go and watch Perfect Blue, whereas yeah. for a while it was Paprika. Yeah. Um, But uh, I guess like basic plot. Um, So there's uh, uh, Mima. I forget, like, she's a few different versions, I think. I forget her like full name is like Mima some like a nickname people do is mm-hmm. Mimarine. Mm-hmm. Um anyway, Mima. Um she is in this idol pop group, um, Cham, and then she ends up leaving the group because she wants to like expand her career and become an actress. Mm. Um and then a lot of it becomes a, a thing that a lot of Hollywood movies are about as well, which is uh, the industry like chews up and spits out women. Mm-hmm. But with the added bonus of it's it's animated. Yeah. And so you don't have to then subject another actress in the process of talking about how actresses have to do yeah. <laughs> like rape scenes and stuff to get ahead. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, someone has still to... has to do the voice acting. But, but that is a very different proposition. Yes. Than like having an actual man on top of you, yeah. At least miming it. So so much like so much of that moment in Perfect Blue is about how like miming sexual assault is just kind of sexual assault. Yeah, <laughs> like there is not really a a difference between those two things. Yes. <laughs> um. Yeah. Uh, and then you know. Like, right when she leaves the group, Cham finally has their first big breakthrough hit, um, 
where they're like placing in the top 100 and stuff. Um, so then she's feeling kind of left behind because she's having trouble, like really getting this work in yeah. acting. And a lot of people are just like, Oh, it's just like a stunt casting getting, you know, this idol, like we should have real act, you know, right. Yeah. Real actress in this role or whatever. Um, and then kind of similar to some of the stuff that Millennium Actress is doing, she starts like channeling some of what's going into her life, into the performances. Yeah. And then her performances and her real life begin to get weirdly mingled. Mm -hmm. Um, where sometimes you see scenes where it seems like people are talking to her about what's actually happening in her life. But then it turns out that she was acting in a scene about like a serial killer movie and stuff. Right. Or, um, it's like a TV series. I think that she's, yeah, she's she's on like an, she's on like ER or something like, like that, I think. Yeah. Or I think it's like a detective thing, but also that includes like a lot of, like one of the main characters is a doctor or whatever. Um, cause they got to get in the, like explaining the psychological whatever of the killer. Um, anyway, uh, and then yeah, as I, I I guess if you haven't seen Perfect Blue, I won't spoil the final the twist. Ones. But there are like actual murders that are happening that are like related to her and how all of it plays out. Yeah. Um and I think a lot of what like Perfect Blue is doing is really good and like Millennium Actress like takes it and does something a little bit different with it, but yes. it's like pulling from a lot of similar ideas. Yeah, they're like kind of swimming in the same pool, but kind of like, you know, doing different things with some of the ideas. Yeah. But like, if you want a movie about how the movie industry chews up young women yeah. and spits them out, Perfect Blue is like probably the best one that's ever been made. Probably. It's... I was really surprised that Millennium Actress was not one of these movies. Yeah. Millennium Actress is just a, a movie about this actress having her own problems outside the film industry. <laughs> yeah. Like, even the stuff with, like, marrying the director... Yeah. Uh, ...is not framed in this... in the Like, at all in the way of, like... Yeah. Oh, he's, like, using her Lecherous, power. Yeah. You know. I mean, he still, like, is kind of deceptive, he, but it's more of... It feels less of just like using your power as a director. Yes, it is. That that is an element to it, but like, you get the impression that the first time she says no, like, he's not gonna force it, force it. You know. Yeah, I would say that Millennium Actress is far more positive on like the movie industry. Yes. Um. Than Perfect Blue. Yes. Um. But we'll get to it in Millennium Actress. Probably has better stairs. There is still some great running downstairs sequence as like a lot of um like in Perfect Blue, a lot of the the blending between like what's happening in her roles and things and then herself uh is dealing more into like kind of losing a sense of self and trying to figure out who you are and um some of that going into like a, a psychological horror direction. Um, and so, but the beginning of like a, a real like mental break that she basically has involves her. Um, she goes to like a, a radio thing, 
basically just to like there's Chan they're like doing the the interview and she just like goes to wave and then sees herself in the other chair as cuz she's like basically being haunted oh, by Oh right, yes. Uh, Mima the pop star. Um, yes. Yeah, they're like idol. Uh who's like this is like what we're really meant to be. I forgot how much lane there is in Perfect Blue. Yeah. There's um, there is another self that exists only within the I internet. Mean, how much Perfect Blue is in Lane? <laughs> they're both being greedy yeah, probably around the same time. It, but yeah, they're both Yeah. Yeah. The what both of these movies are doing are just things that like Japanese media at the time was preoccupied with. Yes. Yes. Um, it's just it's it's funny that they both have this same plot point. Yes. Um Man, she sees herself in the like recording booth and then freaks out and runs down the stairs and then there's like a, a weird uh breaking down of reality chase scene. Um that happens soon after. So, but I did uh, an A minus because I felt like they could have done a little bit more with stairs. I mean, it's Kon Satoshi movie. Like he could yeah. really do some great stair stuff if he wanted. Yeah. As we will see. We As like we matches, will see. So, do you want to <laughs> do you want to tell people about Millennium Actress and what yes. happens in it? Um, Millennium Actress is a two thousand one. You hovered your mouse right right over over the the one. (laughs) So that I couldn't tell if it was a one or a four. Anyway, um, Millennium Actress 2004 movie directed, of course, by Kon Satoshi. 2001 movie. 2001 movie (laughs) directed, of course, by Kon Satoshi. Um, Sort of a... I'm going to use this phrase really, really, really loosely. Um biopic of um uh Setsuko Hara. Yeah, I think um, there's like some is... other actress who's also pulled from here. Yeah, so when I say biopic, um like you and me, listener, we understand that all movies are fake. <laughs> yeah. Um uh, and Takamine Hideko is the other one. Yeah. Um and that like so this is this movie is like sort of inspired by the lives of these two actresses. It is about a fictional character, Chiyoko Fujiwara, Fujihara, something something along those lines. Yeah. Um and it um sort of like takes those actresses and the movies they were in as the inspiration for <clears throat> I guess I'm going to get into it already. So, like, biopics are fake. You're not actually seeing someone's life up on the screen. What you are seeing is a fictional representation of of that life. Um, and and Millennium Actress digs really down deep into that idea of this is a fictional representation of that life. That is sort of this fictional representation is telling a story. Um, th- th- we meet two characters, Genya and the cameraman, uh, Kyoji, whose name I did not get from watching the film. Yeah, he comes up, his name comes up far less often. He's, so he's less of a, he's more, I mean, there's lots of comedy in here, but he primarily serves like a comic relief role, I would say. So Genya, um, works at this film studio, um, that is like, 
winding down. It was like like big mid-century Japanese film studio that is like no longer producing movies, but they're going to like, you know, businesses fold up and then little subsidiaries kind of spin off and do their own thing. And so he's like, I want to make this documentary about um, the studio's biggest star, basically. And um, it's Chiyoko and she, um, yeah, Fujiwara. um, She like has been sort of a recluse for the last 30 years. Um, And um, doesn't really do public appearances and stuff like that. So, um, Begenya is able to get an interview with her. And they go and they talk about her life. And as she's doing the interview, um, you just see Genya and Kyoji kind of hanging out in the scene. And she'll be like, oh, yeah, so my you know, my mother didn't approve of me wanting to be an actress, but the, you know, studio head said, blah, blah, blah. And then you'll just see like Genya and Kyoji like sitting there. Um, And then that sort of like layer of like abstraction gets an additional layer where at some point she's not telling them about the um, events of her life. She's telling them about, and then I was in this samurai movie and I did this and this and this. And like all of a sudden Genya will be in a suit of armor and he'll also be a samurai in the movie. Yes. Um, often casting himself in this role of like, I will protect Chiyoko. Um, but then also the like in the movie, she is pursuing this long lost love, which is reflective of the actual ultimate like truth of what the movie is about is that Chiyoko um, before World War II she is a young woman she meets um, this like sort of like revolutionary guy who's being chased by the police and um, she has this very touching day with him and he like leaves to escape the secret police and she he gives her a key And it's like, this opens the most important thing that there is. And she spends the next 70 plus years of her life chasing after, trying to meet this man again. You know, oh, I'm going to like be in all these movies so that like he will um, see me and he'll come track me down. And uh, oh, this movie is going to Manchuria. I heard he was in Manchuria. I'll like take a day off set and I'll go like see if I can find him, stuff like that. Um, and she spends like all, all her acting roles. She can only see through this lens of like this woman who is chasing after this, like love. Um, and it like sort of disintegrates her personal life because she can't connect to other people a lot of the time because she's like, well, I'm saving myself for this one man. Um, and it, over the course of this, um, we see Genya as a young man working at the studio, just clearly like idolizing her and like really just thinking that she's the coolest. Um, and um, there's a lot of plot stuff. We can get into that if we want to get into that. But the ending is two things. One, Genya found out from this guy that the man she was in love with died like 40 years ago 
and Genya never told Chiyoko. Yeah. Um, and two, Chiyoko uh, basically finishes her story. Like, oh, this is the story of like my last movie, and then I went and didn't do anything for 30 years. I've been living in the countryside, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, um, she kind of like went into hiding almost for a little bit. Yes. Um. <clears throat> One of the things she says is she's like, I didn't want him to see me aging, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, and um, if basically the moment she finishes the story drops dead. <laughs> yeah. It's like a little more protracted than that, but not by much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like a, a whole thing with this is she's like, oh, I was born during a, like a earthquake. The Great Kanto um, earthquake. Yes. And my dad was so happy like to see me be born and then died in the earthquake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so her life has like always been tied to it. And when they first arrive, there's like a small shock and then there's a larger one. Um, one thing that's like key to Genya's character is that he is... Um, throughout all of the, like, as they dip into, especially like the, the cinematic parts, um, he will often appear as the like character in that movie who might save the female character that she's playing, um, and like Mm -hmm. sacrifice himself or something, um, so that she can like go on. Mm -hmm. But she's Um, also taking no notice of him saving her. Yes. Because she is always pursuing this other love. Um, and in it, we find like, you know, what seems to be a real event from their lives where, uh, during the filming of her last, like her final movie, um, there is an accident on set where like some scaffolding collapsed or something and he like jumped on and protected her, Mm -hmm. um, and was okay. And she, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and then, but she was just so like, Shaken up by this. Yeah, shaken up and also, like, overcome by, you know, we get this, like, recurring motif of the old woman being, like, you know, I love and despise you and, like, you're cursed by the, the teeth to, like, love for a thousand years. Yeah, the, 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 the witches from Throne of Blood yes. <laughs> show up at the start of the movie and um, curse her to live a thousand years of um, burning and eternal love. Yes. Um, so she runs off the set and that's basically when she disappears. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, so, but yeah. And so then he also, during the final earthquake, something on the, like, there's, there's one of those, uh, like ceiling things that holds the pot over the fire with like the traditional, I forget the actual name for this, like thing, but, mm-hmm. um, it's sort of a, a traditional Japanese home thing. Um, where you have like the bamboo pole that comes down and then there's like things that hold the pot. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's what starts collapsing or like part of the beam or something. Um, and so then he saves her again. Um, but then she's just like too old and yeah. Yeah. Um, has perhaps been dying the entire time because there's also the whole thing with the Lotus that's going to bloom and yeah, she seems to like, there's the recurring thing of the moon uh, mm-hmm. and the day before the full moon being this like revolutionary guy's favorite day. And they, um, they say like, well, we can come back tomorrow. And she says, uh, I don't know about that guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, 
I thought this movie was incredibly touching. Um, I spent a lot of my teenage years reading Gabriel Garcia Marquez novels. Um, and person spends entire life pining after other person who is unavailable for some way is the plot of basically every Gabriel Garcia Marquez novel. (laughs) Um, It is the plot of four different novels that exist inside 100 Years of Solitude. (laughs) Like, a bunch of different characters all go through that. Um, So I was just eating this shit up. This shit was candy to me. I was just like, gimme, gimme, gimme. (laughs) Well, especially because you get the, like, she has the unrequited love for the revolutionary. Genya has the unrequited love for her. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. and like, oh, it's so good. It's just so, it's so good. <laughs> I think my favorite part of, of this movie is, um, and I think some of it is just like a, a like it, it makes sense in the, the perspective that's being changed, but, um, some of the other, so like paprika is specifically dealing with dreams as this like surreal or um unusual or like magical imagery comes Mm -hmm. in um perfect blue is specifically dealing with like you know mental health yeah uh, like having these questions of identity and these like mental breakdowns and Mm -hmm. is, is bringing that stuff in um and and brings in this like blurring that one in particular this blurring between like reality in the film role um this one also does it and and i think also within perfect blue a lot of it is being framed around this actual real life trauma that she's going through um and is experiencing she's also to some degree becoming a good actress because she is channeling that into her performances that like part of what a performance needs is that like um that like degree of investment of your own personal thing and that part of what can be like dangerous about these roles is the way that like sometimes in order to get the the performance out of the actress it involves traumatizing the actress like we've all read plenty of things about stanley kubrick right fucking horrid man yeah um what I think is interesting about this is that you do get some of like oh she's channeling this like unrequited love this like um thing where she met this like revolutionary and fell in love as a little girl and has been chasing that love all of her life. But also there's like a weird, like it, it feels less directional than it does in perfect blue where there's also a certain feedback of Uh like, she is doing all these roles that are about like lost love and everything that is like kind of feeding into like her perception of herself. Yes. Um, and it is also feeding into like, of course, this man who, who, you know, encountered her working at the studio, uh, loved her work, felt like loved her, but also from afar and has this feeling of like unrequited love will then connect to those works and also see himself in those works. And we get it like as the protector or whatever. Yeah. But Also, like, I think it starts with him watching and just, like, crying, watching a, you know, the, the, like, space shuttle scene, and it's, like, I'm sure he's also seeing himself in, like, her character. Yes. You know? Yes. And so I think there's, like, more of a, uh, one, it it is less, like, about an 
an exploitative system. Mm-hmm. And so I think like, like, I think in some ways this is not just a film about how this experience in her past informed like her acting, yes. but it's also about how like right now, uh, the way that we like think of and conceive of our pasts, our memories, our history. Cause also a lot of like Japan's history is interwoven into this movie. Yeah. I want to get back to that in a minute. Yeah. A lot of that stuff is now informed by mm-hmm. films. Yeah. Um, people will, people do this even more so with dreams, but also with, um, memories and also with like telling story like the cinematic filmic language has become a way that like our minds think about and orient things yeah um and so you know and this is true of like other media like uh people who who can have like ludic dreams or uh lucid dreaming yeah not ludic but is influenced by video games People mm-hmm. who play lots of video games are more likely to be able to have lucid huh. dreams, but also uh, in a difference from other lucid dreams that people would fall into where you kind of have control over the entire dream world. People who play lots of video games will have lucid dreams, but only feel control over themselves mm-hmm. uh, and less control over the like world they're interacting with because they have learned that, like your brain like learns these patterns, even if they're fiction. Mm-hmm. It's still how you like orient your understanding of the world. Yeah. Um, where like, and this is both film as well as just photography. Like people just think of like, like I think of the seventies as a certain like Polaroid discoloration right. or right. like, you know, like there's a technicolor lens that I have when I think of time there's a, periods. There's a really interesting aesthetic touch to this movie where in the, the the beginning of the movie, or or not the beginning of the movie necessarily, but in the like the beginning of like her story. Yes, at the moment that she is youngest, her her skin is like incredibly pale, and then it gets like not darker, but it gets like more maybe more tan. Like like as the years go on, it's kind of hard to like put. Without looking at it, it would be hard to yeah. put an exact word. Also, hard to put a word to it that isn't, like, racialized in weird ways that this film is not doing. <laughs> yeah, it is specifically doing, like, like the, the earliest parts of her memory. Yes. Are not black and white, uh-huh. but are desaturated in a way. Yes. And pushed sort of... in a way that fit how black and white images look. Yes. Sort mm-hmm. of reminiscent of the thing that, like, Only Yesterday is doing of, like... Only yesterday, in a much more literal way, where like the edges of the canvas are not filled in. Um, yeah. This movie, in a much more subtle way, of like details, sort of like fall away a little bit. Yes, and specifically um, fall away in like a a way that, um, like, like I think to some degree it is the oh, of course you have the memory where in your memory there would be some color. Lem's just like this what are you cat. Doing? Um, this cat is up to no good. Anyway, um, you know, it's not that there's no color, but that like, a, there's almost like a black and white filter over, yes. over it. Well, um, and the, the, the other thing that I think it, um, is sort of reflecting like the ways in which her skin tone changes over the course of the years, um, is I think it reflects like 
camera technology capturing more and more of the yes. detail um and also like her own age you know um yeah. i just think it's interesting um what i also think is interesting about this is that like any biopic um biopic i always say biopic i I, I used people. to i used to always say biopic yeah i don't know when i switched to biopic um, or why or like a uh written biography that you would read or whatever Mm -hmm. that is going to be about like a a actor or actress he's of course just going to be like full of the roles they were in yes like that to some degree is what their life is yes um and so this understands that even as like other things are happening around it like when you were in that industry mm-hmm. like your your life is kind of demarcated by the movies that you were in as well yes um in a way where like there's also a certain amount of a recounting that's happening here of being like it's not it was this year or like when i was this old or whatever it's like when oh, we were when making we were shooting this. that movie yeah yeah um, um, that's, this is what was happening. There's a, the other thing that just makes this movie like a, an incredible joy to watch, especially, um, if let's say, for example, you've spent the last year making a, um, podcast, which is kind of taking you through a very quick and dirty history of Japanese cinema. Um, not yeah. very thorough, just like we watched a lot of Japanese movies. Um, <laughs> I'm just like this. Yeah, we're just like this. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you if you know what they're pulling from, and even if you don't, I think um, it is such a joy to be like, oh, there's Throne of Blood happening. Oh, there's No Regrets for Our Youth happening. Oh, I think this is probably Tokyo Story. I haven't seen that movie. <laughs> yeah. Um... Um, oh, there's Godzilla. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is like also kind of a Jidaigeki, but is in the like far more like campy space where there's like ninjas that are ridiculous. And right. you referenced Naruto, and I was like, I was joking that it was Naruto. I was joking. <laughs> I still gave you a look. You gave me a look because I made a joke about oh, it's Naruto. Of course, it's not Naruto. <laughs> <laughs> Lun's just like peeking his head out from the because we record in my closet, so from clothing. Yes. Lun, you are such a little gremlin today. Um. Um. But no. Also, saying that though, kind of. So one of the other things that I I thought of this time because I've seen this multiple times, but previous times I didn't like key in on is that also. Like, I think in some ways this film is intentionally being, like, aware of and commenting on that all of this is a film. Yes. That, like, uh, and some of it is, like, the framing of, like, there's this documentary crew. It's so... But, like, the whole thing, like, this being based on, like, these two actresses Mm -hmm. and her, like, the thing that's supposed to have happened in her real life... Um, being basically like the core tension of No Regrets for a Youth, one of the yes. movies that the actresses did, yes, is like at the end of the movie when the key is physically there and the like painting on the wall that she has framed is physically there. Uh huh. 
I still don't know if the movie is actually saying these things are real. You know? Right. Or, like, in a way that's separate from the other stuff. Yeah, I don't I know either. I think that stuff is also, like... I think this movie is more about how, even though those things are things that might appear in the present and be physical things that they are holding on to, um, that doesn't actually mean that they are any more real than any of the other stuff that we've been seeing. Right. Um, and that it is... Because those are more just, like, symbols of these emotions that are, like, you know, core, um, we catch a little bit of a cat butt there on the way in. Yeah, he, like, was walking out, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna close the door, and then he, like, hesitated with his tail still. Hmm. (laughs) Um, but yeah, that, like... Those are those are the most obvious, like even more so than anything else in this movie. The most obvious, just like filmic symbols. Yes, yes. You know, he, like the the things that are like within the plot of the movie, perhaps the most real, are uh-huh. also the things that are the most just like, oh, this is a fucking movie. Yeah, this is just fucking he, movie symbols. The, he leaves for her in like. A fire, like, her whole town is firebombed, but he leaves for her an incredibly photorealistic painting done on the wall of the storeroom where they hid from the cops one time. Yeah. Um, And that is, like, the only thing in the entire town that has survived is this painting. And I'm like, I don't know that this is a real thing. Yeah. And when it appears, there's supposed to be a little bit of like, oh, it was real the whole time, because that is the thing that feels like it could just... But I think it is intentionally playing with the two elements that feel the most like... Like, what happens if the key gets so weird and and mingled, too? Uh Because there's multiple times where you're like, oh, okay, like, here's this key with the box, and then... The key functions as the one ring, basically. Yes. (laughs) But, like... Because if you also think about it, it's like, okay, so she has the key. She loses the key because um, the one actress steals it. Mm. Uh, the That actress gives it to the director, like, director husband. The, well, director of the time. And then her, like, not having the key in this reminder, like, she basically strays from her, like, constant pursuit. Mm-hmm. Um, then There's... she discovers the key. Real quick. Yeah. In the scene where... Oh, you were getting there. Okay. Well, yeah. So when she discovers the key, it is in the box. It is the box that the that Genya brings. Yes. But then she takes it, and when Genya gets it, it's just laying on the floor after, like, the rubble, and she runs away. Right. Um. And so it's like, how did that box reappear? Like, there's, there's even within, like, the way that they are telling the story, there are inconsistencies. And I'm not doing this, like, cinema sins or whatever. Yeah. But, like, the, the, I think the, the film is intentionally introducing stuff where, like, so much of how the key and the painting, the, mm. like, painting on the wall end up is just within, in ways that they didn't even have to do. Yeah. Is, like, cued as being just, like, incredibly... Uh, impossible and unrealistic. There's two things I wanted to pull out with the, um, like, scene where she rediscovers the key, which is, one, um, so we see her, she's just married to the director, she's cleaning the home, um, she goes into his study, and off the bookshelf, 
the one thing that she picks, she knocks over a couple books because he's his shelf is disorganized, and the one thing that she picks up just happens to be this key, which is already like, what a weird thing. Yeah. He walks in. She shows him the key. I have the key. And then we zoom out and reveal that the study that they were in is a set. Yeah. And that he was keeping the key on the set, apparently, which is a patently absurd thing to do if you're trying to keep this a secret. And then the actress who stole it comes in and she's off the set talking to the husband and wife on the set. And it's like yeah. you could like the the layers of unreality just keep compounding and compounding. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. And in a way where, like, it wouldn't make sense even in the home scene for the actress to be there. Yeah, maybe it makes more sense if this is a set. But then, like, why does the her... set look exactly like his study? Yeah, and a lot of it is just gesturing towards, like, no, there's like a, a constructedness mm-hmm. to reality itself. Well, and you get through the whole movie, you're getting Kyoji, the cameraman. But of course, this is an animated movie. There is no cameraman. Yeah. <laughs> I guess there's a cameraman, but not really like that. <laughs> yeah. Um And also just like Oh, 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 I remembered one other thing about the oh, yeah. cuz that was maybe one of my favorite scenes in the movie is um the, the part the part where uh they're in the family home and then it's revealed to be a set is one of the most like oh, this is pulling from stuff like Teriyama Shuji or like other totally. experimental directors at that time. Totally. Um, this is like a much more like the, 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 like there's all this unreality happening in that scene. And then there's like this incredibly like emotionally real and therefore like real by the logic of the movie. I think that like the emotions are what matters. Yes. The director is like, they're the, the two actresses are arguing and then this director He's like, oh, but that's all in the long, in the distant past. We could put that behind us. And he's shaking it. And he makes eye contact with um, Chiyoko. And she is was just staring at him with this, like... And you can just tell in the, the expression that she gives. She doesn't have to say it. This is not the long past for me. This yeah. is today. This is now. I feel this yearning for this man for from my youth every day and it's so good yeah <laughs> it's incredible and then they just hold on that for a moment like they just yeah. let you like s- let that expression sink in well that's what him saying like oh it's all in the past is within the framing of the story calling attention to the fact that he is saying it's all in the past in the past while she's still telling the story uh-huh. about how she's been chasing this man all of her We life. also don't get what <laughs> happens to the director. Like, I guess yeah. he just, I, I guess he just dies of smoking yeah. too much at some point and um, she outlives him. And the part where she like, one of the other scenes that is uh, kind of interesting me and in how like out of time, mm-hmm. I guess it is, is the part where there's the, the, uh, like officer who arrested the revolutionary and gives the letter and kind of breaks down and then she runs off. And mm-hmm. it's like, that feels like it's also her running off and disappearing mm-hmm. to never be seen again Yes, in the exact same way that when it happens on set, 
is. Yes, absolutely. Um, like, that feels like the moment of her checking out, and then, like, maybe, like, she checks out mentally in that moment, um, and then, you know, it takes this sort of, like, physical danger that she, like, actually follows through on this thing that, like, kind of has already happened in her mind, you know? Yeah. Um, we also haven't talked about, like, the best part of the whole movie is at the very end, she's, like, you know reflecting on she's dying and she's reflecting on her life and she's like but after all the thing i really loved was the pursuit which is like yeah very clearly evidently true if you watch the movie is that she doesn't like she cares about the man but like kind of always in the back of your head is like i don't even know what she would do if she found him i don't think that finding him matters i think pursuing him matters and that's the moment like she sees that and then she goes off into heaven and the screen fades to white and a, <laughs> a kind of ridiculous bad song pops up, but we'll forget about that. <laughs> um, yeah. This movie's great. Yeah. It's a, there's like this weird thing within me uh-huh. where Tokyo Godfathers, uh-huh. I watch every year. Yes. From that perspective, it's my favorite Kong uh-huh. Satoshi movie. Uh huh. Talking through this, I'm like, yeah, man, Millennium Actress is so fucking good. Yeah. Like, it's doing so many things that are like, that like Perfect Blue sets up, uh-huh. but like takes it and like explores it m- more deeply. And yet, still in my heart, is like my favorite Kong Satoshi movie that I think is his best one is Perfect Blue. And I can't explain <laughs> it. I can't explain it. I mean, the thing that I can't explain. Is that for me? I mentioned this earlier. And I didn't fully explain it. Perfect Blue is the second best one, and either Millennium Actress or Tokyo Godfathers is the first. Which I guess then means that whichever one isn't first is in third. You know, like yeah, <laughs> like if Tokyo Godfathers is my favorite, then Perfect Blue is two, and Millennium Actress is three, or Millennium yeah. Actress Perfect Blue. <laughs> <laughs> I think part the we haven't they're, talked that much about all the animation movies. in this. The animation in this is in, it is incredible. Yes. Um there is something about Perfect Blue where like it is his first feature. Mm-hmm. And he is like creating this like you see the the roughness of it. Mm-hmm. At the same time it is just absolutely blowing you away with how it's animating things. Um, and there's just a weird, like the animation I think is really the thing with perfect blue that like, and I can't fully explain it, but like as much as I will talk about how fucking fantastic, um, the animation is in these other movies, I think he's just a fantastic animator. Um, perfect blue is just weirdly like the best one animated to me. Yeah. even as it is the roughest, but like it is the one that like we, we talked about the, um, that thing with, uh, what is it? Not sleeping beauty, the beauty and the beauty and the beast where you can like see how it's being made. Yes. I feel like I get that feeling the most with perfect blue where I'm like, I am constantly aware of like how this is a a thing where someone drew all this shit and animated it and like the process of it. And I'm always kind of aware of it and like overwhelmed by it. And I think that's why perfect blue is my favorite, even though as we're 
as I was saying, if I'm thinking about the themes and everything and how it like handles the plot and stuff, it's Millennium Actress. But think about the one that just means the most to me personally. It's um, Tokyo Godfathers and Paprika is firmly his fourth best movie. <laughs> I don't like Paprika very much. Firmly his fourth best movie. I think I'd probably like it now. Did not like it when I saw it. Anyway. I, I liked it. I think um, I I should rewatch it. I've w- recently watched his other three. I should just rewatch it and see how it feels for me. But so this is not something that I've ever picked up from Cohn's other works, but particularly the early part. I think this falls away. But the early part of this movie. As you get Genya in the office building and then sort of like walking up this like hill in the Japanese countryside and you see construction happening was really hitting me with like um, really reminding me of the films of Hayao Miyazaki, um, a, a, a director I am. A known hater of <laughs> yeah um but it's like weird i was gonna jokingly say 2001 miyazaki's in his flop era 2001 he really spirited away so fuck me i guess the two movies on the other side of spirit away are dog shit but spirited away is spirited away <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway um so and I've never, I've never seen like any sort of Ghibli or Miyazaki influence in Satoshi Kon's other work, but like it hit, it hit me here, and I thought it was so interesting, um, just because like, you know, if you compare this movie to Spirited Away, like that is like there's a lot of technology that's being experimented with in Princess Mononoke for doing computer animation um, that then that looks really bad, I think, in Mononoke and looks really good in um, Spirited Away. I think, like, um, as far as the computer animation stuff goes, I think that, like, Miyazaki never does it better than he does in Spirited Away. Um, And it's interesting taking that movie... Spirited Away with this sort of, like, perfectionist masterpiece of of Miyazaki being this weirdo asshole who's going to work all these people to death. Um, And you compare it then to this movie, which made for probably a lot less money. (laughs) I'm not going to go look at those numbers. You can still see he got, like, a a budget for this. Oh, yeah, he definitely got... Perfect Blue. He definitely got a decent budget, um... But it's interesting the ways in which, like, this movie, um... Not that much, well... Oh, if you do U.S., it's, like, ten times. Um, so, like, this movie, you can still feel the, like, this was all, like, there's no computers here, you know? And I'm not, this is not me detracting from, like what Spirited Away is doing in any way. I'm just saying that, like, it's really interesting. You take these two movies of the same year that have a couple of the same aesthetic trappings, you know, like, there's this the shot of the lotuses is just, like, straight out of a Ghibli movie, and you just see the different ways that two different directors 
are gonna do those same shots. It's really interesting, I think. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And then, like, from there, like, Cone goes into the sort of, like, malleability of space of characters are in this set and then it sort of transforms by the magic of cinema into another set, which is just, like, not something that Ghibli ever really does you know yeah. other than like deliberate magic sequences where like you have like howl yank somebody through a door and it's you're now you're in a different place whereas like cone leans on the magic of cinema <laughs> yeah miyazaki does things that might have a bit of this but it, it yeah it is specifically framed within like uh in in-world magic logic rather than Cone kind of just allows like a more like things just kind of slip in and out of like mm -hmm. what might be reality and what might be like fantasy or magic or whatever. Yeah. Um, and in a way where like those lines are not clear. Yes. He's, I don't think he's that interested in. No. Like there are parts in perfect blue where it's just like, I think he's specifically interested in the ways those lines yes. are blurry. You know, yes. he's specifically interested in the fact that you're watching the whole thing of like her meeting this, you know, revolutionary and everything and then gets to and all of it just seems to be the story that she's telling about when she was a kid and then gets to the part where she runs up the like stairs to the train station and then says something and then Genya shouts it along because it's a line from the movie and the yes. cameraman's like wait when did this become about the movie yeah uh, <laughs> and it's like was it the movie the whole time yeah the, is the whole thing that she's chasing just the first role where she like did this performance about this lost love? Like, <laughs> the <laughs> my favorite moment of that does she just have a thing from the set in the movie that is the painting of her as a girl? Or maybe not my favorite moment of that, <laughs> but my favorite moment of that that we haven't talked about yet is like the first time that Genya sort of like introduces himself into the narrative. It's like she's in the samurai movie. And her, she, she is like this lady, um, and, and her Lord has like committed seppuku and, um, then Genya like shows up and he's like, he's going to save her. He's a big, strong man. And he's in the samurai armor. And then it cuts to, um, her, she's like miming that she's riding on a horse and he's like miming that he just got shot off the yeah. horse <laughs> and he's got a samurai helmet on and the <laughs> cameraman is like, what the fuck is happening right yeah. now? <laughs> and so you know going forward that like alright, all the stuff we're seeing is on some level is just two people in a room talking and just getting way too swept up in the like remembering oh on that movie it was like this <laughs> yeah it's really cute um yeah the, so the first time i watched this movie mm -hmm. i just want to like talk a little bit about an animation in this um i watched it in it's like middle school or high school i guess it, 2001 I think it probably would have been like early high school mm -hmm. like i was maybe a freshman maybe it was the summer in between but um because my my i watched it with my like closest in age brother um and we got to it and he was like that could have just been a film like there no. wasn't and 
And at the time I was like that, like, I understand what you're saying, but it couldn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't fully have like the arguments at the time. I mean, but I, I just think about it. I think about it with a lot of Cone's works mm-hmm. because I think that, um, a lot of his stuff feels grounded in like Japanese cinema on film and things. He's pulling from that, like, famously, you know, Darren Aronofsky has, like, ripped off shots of his. And some of yeah. that is also its, its own kind of animation. But yeah. um, even, like, stuff with, uh, you know, Black Swan is, like, there's a lot of stuff there that is not necessarily, like, Black using... Swan just is a remake of Perfect Blue. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think some of it is, like... You know, and this is the one that's the most like, oh, you could just film all of these scenes. And one is like, it was like, what, 1.2 million Mm -hmm. budget for this? Yeah. That would be so much higher if you have to get the actual Kurosawa, like, masses of people on horses riding towards the train. For two minutes? For a joke shot, kind of. (laughs) And you also need to have all of them on, like, period... Like they're they are bandits as well as samurai. Uh-huh. Um <laughs> Well and you need like ways to make the the witch cursing Chioko. Chioko will like see her reflection in a mirror and it will become the witch. That looks great in animation. Um I can very easily see that looking hokey as shit. <laughs> yes. But, and I, so I think some of it too, the other thing that, um, cause this is sometimes a, a criticism that have been levied on Cohen. I think there's like an, an interview he gave once or something where he was like, the other thing that people don't understand is there's some stuff where people are like, oh, you could have just shot that. And he's like, no, because if I recorded it, I want to have this gesture and I want it to last like three frames. And uh-huh. there's just no way that I can get an actor to do that hand movement in three frames. Yeah. Like, I just, it's not going to yeah. work that way. And so, like... It's not how quick the human body moves. Yeah. You know? Um, and this one in particular, like, the fact that it's animation just allows for such... Like, the 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 amount of, like, planning and plotting and, like, figuring out how all these scenes are going to connect, how you're going to like transition between scenes where she's like rapidly moving through stuff. Um, You could maybe plan that stuff out in on film, but like you do the Sidney Lumet thing of like, Oh, we shot everything against that wall. Now we're coming back a week later. We did everything where she was running and now it's got to be her going down the hill, but I want it to match the exact motions. Like Mm -hmm. this is so reliant on, especially as towards the climax of the movie, you start just getting like almost a cycling through, like she's like continuing to, to relive these things. Um, and so you actually get like a cycling through of a, like some of it is honestly just like scenes that you saw before. Mm-hmm. They literally just repeat the footage and yet it now blends together in a, a seamless way where it's like, okay, you probably had to like figure out at least or animate that montage at the end and then use those clips in the other scenes in order for this to work. Like, yeah. Yeah. Just the, the, the way that like 
And, and I think it's so core to what this movie is that the like motions and the actions and everything can be so contiguous between completely radically different like filmic scenes um, that within animation that is not shots from multiple different times in her life where she was different you know, an actress at different points, you could of course cast a bunch of different uh, actresses who look similar or whatever to do some of these. But I think it is also thematically important that within animation, no, it literally is like I could draw that picture and then I draw the next picture. That's like 15 years later in a completely different movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's fucking incredible. Yeah. Um, we're coming up on two hours. Um, oh, yeah, it's we have midnight. Email. We have emails and we have to rate stairwells. So let's get trucking. Shall we rate the stairwell first? This um, is an S, I think. I was thinking A plus, but I can be convinced. There's a lot of stairs in this. And I, the montage includes multiple running upstairs. There's a, there is, there's a montage and there's also like recurring stairs. Uh, yeah, let's give it an S. Yeah. Let's give it an S. It's our podcast. We can do whatever we want. I was thinking A+, but I, I am happy with the S. Yeah. Aiden asks, um, first time I watched Millennium Actress, um, I was watching tons of anime, but hadn't seen a ton of live-action Japanese cinema. Now I've seen a lot more, and the pastiches it's doing make it work better. Is there anything like that for you where you saw a movie and then years later you saw the movie that it was sort of like doing a pastiche of and it made it hit better for you. The one that comes to mind for me is um, Mulholland Drive and then seeing Sunset Boulevard years later and being like, oh, <laughs> yeah, same movie. Um, I was thinking definitely like as I come back to this movie, I am even more like aware of some of the stuff that it's doing or, or I'm like more keyed into all of the little pastiches it's doing. But also when I saw this, I'd already seen a fair number of Like I saw it and I was like, Oh, throne of blood, Mm -hmm. you know, but I was not necessarily pulling some of the other references in the way that, that now I am. Um, But I'm trying to think the weird one to me. And some of this is just, when I was a kid, mm-hmm. um, a lot of '90s kid cartoons like to reference like yes stuff that just kids had no reference point for. Yes, like I watch Animaniacs now, and I'm like, damn, they're referencing so much shit that I didn't know. There's so much <laughs> shit that like I'll be like, where do I know this plot from? And then I'll be like, oh, the Fairly Odd Parents did a riff on that when I was like six, and I didn't know what the fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I do think one of the, I think anime is one where, um, you know, I had a little bit less of an effect with this one. Um, and I think in part because it's so obviously like wearing the reference of Japanese cinema, Uh um, that I was kind of able to cue into some of them. And I, I was aware of the other ones, even if I wasn't fully pulling the exact reference. Yeah. Like I Um, don't really know what Ozu movies are like, but I could sort of pointed scenes in this movie be like this is probably doing tokyo story you know um but i i do think so like we talked about lane i think lane is kind of this Uh uh-huh where the first time i watched lane i 
in a way where like I think it is improved or or it has getting gotten me into a place where um I think I like have a clear understanding of why I like it that actually feels more genuine. Whereas the first time I watched it, I was just like, wow, this is doing shit. Like this is like blowing my mind. Um, but I wasn't like my enduring memory of it was just it doing all this kind of wild shit that now I'm like, Oh, I've just watched a bunch of like V cinema movies and earlier experimental Japanese films. And like, none of this is that new. Yeah. Um, it was just new to me. Yeah as a and some of that stuff is like you know i i thought that like evangelion was really doing a bunch of shit and now i've just watched enough other anime and earlier japanese films and things where i'm like oh none of this is new but i think in some ways that like actually makes me appreciate something more for what it is where i'm not like suckered in by its influences yeah and thinking that it is like what is making this special and instead realizing that like, no, even like Terry Yamashuji, who I think was probably truly like inventive and in, in doing some incredible things. Lots of people have cited his works, um, was still pulling from like shit that was happening in theater. Like nothing is yeah. original. And I think the more that I've just become aware of that, um, the more I'm able to like approach things, not as, Oh wow. This is like, revolutionary or whatever and more like what is it that this thing is doing i went on a little mini version of this journey this year that i just thought about too i i guess this ties into moholland and sunset boulevard of before we did stairwells i was into a lot of noir stuff but a lot of the noir stuff that i was into was neo-noir was like you know 70s, 80s, 90s aughts movies and comics that are riffing on noir movies. It wasn't until we started Stairwells that I started going... I'd seen a couple, but like I really, since we've done this podcast, have gone through, like, I'm going to watch just a bunch of, like, 40s and 50s actual-ass noir movies. Yeah. And those are sort of... I showed you of, the third man, and you're like, that was fucking incredible. <laughs> Hook me up. Well, and like... <clears throat> Um, just sort of, sort of made me realize, like, oh, all this, like, neo-noir stuff is not introducing anything to the genre. Yeah. Like, most of the stuff that I've watched is not introducing anything new to the genre. Yeah. Like, maybe Blade Runner is by saying, oh, you could do this in sci-fi, too. That's no, about the extent no, of it. That's not, not really. Not really. <laughs> um. Yeah. <laughs> like, none of this shit's original. All the shit was being done in the forties, yeah. you know. Um, but also sometimes you watch it and you're just like, "Oh, that was a good one." Yeah, no, that's not Blade Runner is a good fucking noir. <laughs> yeah, that's this is not any shade to yeah. like. There's some neo noir things that I look back on now and I'm like, "Oh man, I wish I had just seen the real shit." And there's some that I'm like, "Oh, you just did a good one of those, and you were just born twenty two. 20 years too late to be one of the, like the originals, but you were just yeah. doing a good one of those. I think this is part of just like becoming, you know, quote unquote, well read or well watched or whatever yeah. is just starting to get to a point where, um, in some ways, even when you see something that feels like, Oh wow, that was like really fresh. That felt really original. You've just gone through this process so many times that you're like, I wonder what it's referencing. I wonder what it's pulling from. Yeah. Like, 
You know, it might still be doing some really cool new things, but also like, man, what is this in dialogue with? This is talking to something. <laughs> um, sort of relatedly, Aiden also asks, does the mere idea of movies about movies annoy or frustrate you at all? The answer is no. Uh, mm. Most movies are about movies. If we didn't like this, we would stop watching movies. Yeah. Not most movies. Most movies that are catering to the sort of people who watch the movies that we watch like end yeah. up being about movies. I mean, I think part of it is like if you make movies, one, that's your life, that's what you know. Yeah. And you're going to talk about it in some way. And also, if you make a bunch of movies, you're probably also thinking about like what is a movie, what does a movie mean? And yeah. you're going to start making movies about that. Well, and also like... I think broadly speaking, like, I think people who make movies, you know, are often interested in, like, what is the process of making art, broadly yes. speaking, and movies as their lens for it. But, like, novelists are constantly writing novels about how hard it is to write novels. Yeah. Stephen King has been doing this for however well, many decades. Like Hanabi is a movie about painting, but it is also about movies. Yeah, totally. 100%. <laughs> you know, even if you're doing it about another art form when you're doing it, if you're talking about any art form while you're doing a different art form, you're also kind of just talking about the art form yeah. that you're currently doing. Too. Yeah, totally. 100%. There's like no escaping it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Zhuo um, says, uh, which movie covered by Stairwell should get a remake where Nicolas Cage plays all the characters? <laughs> plays all of the characters. Um, Lord have mercy. Um, Emma is a strong contender. <laughs> <laughs> Just for, like, the full humor factor here. Uh-huh. Um... I'm, I'm cat trying. people, strong contender. Oh, that would be really good. Because <laughs> that's the kind of like B horror uh -huh. stuff that you just really want to let Nicolas Cage ham it up on. Um, um, I was gonna say Bram Stoker's Dracula, but no, I no that no. I don't want a movie to be that blood horny about Nicolas Cage and only Nicolas Cage. <laughs> it's just like, he's not that attractive. So that takes a yeah. lot of the fun of that movie out of it. Um, I saw let me die a woman. Joe <laughs> <laughs> um, also asks, um, what's the best stairwell in Ruby? I don't remember. Don't ask me this. And finally asks, um, which Vim Vendors movie should get remade by John Woo and vice versa? <laughs> um, should we just like pull up? Yeah. Vim Vendors. Um, um, filmography. The I'm, American Friend yeah. as the American Friend as a John Woo movie is so ridiculous. <laughs> Um, I did lean towards that. That was my first thought before I even pulled this up. Because that's like, I see how that functions, right? Yeah. That is a, like, thriller, quote unquote. Um, Vim Vendors plays it about as differently as John Woo possibly could. But, like, I see how that movie functions, you know? Yeah. In a way I haven't that... seen it, and yet I still had a feeling that, like, that could work. Yes. Um... Let's look at John Woo. 
Yeah. Um, I feel good about the American friend having not seen it. So. Yeah. No. But the fact that you also said it, I'm just like, okay. Yeah. Um, also like that the American friend is a movie that pivots on how good and how different Bruno Gantz and, um, uh, Dennis Hopper are. And there's nothing John Woo loves more than I've got these two actors who are total polar opposites. Let me throw them against each other. You know, that's his favorite shit. Um, Um, I mean, not to do the one that we did on the podcast, but a Vim Vendors movie of Face Off would just get so deep into the weeds of like identity. I feel like (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking, I was thinking the killer for similar reasons, except that the killer is like, Oh, that's the arty one. And so, yeah, I see how Vim vendors like fits into that a little easier than I see face off. Cause face off has so much like, ridiculous plot stuff to get through that doesn't need to be there whereas but also i want you know the scene in paris texas where there's like the the doctor or whatever who's calling about like i found this guy Uh uh-huh and he's just in the weird green room and he's just extremely german yes i just want that man doing the surgeries (laughs) (laughs) it's part of it um also, I feel like maybe Wind Talkers he could do. I feel like well, Vim Vendor's Red Cliff movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that is, but it's great. Um, and we have a final one, right? From, um, from yes. Rick. Rick just asks, "What comics are you wanting to read?" Um, I don't have my tablet in front of me, so it's kind of hard for me to answer that yeah. question. I remembered this, so I brought my tablet. Um, I I just everything that I want to read, I just load up on Takiomi to like have in the back of my head. Yeah, let me. Well, so let me first pull up. Um, this is where I I'm binding chain chapter past and future of the conviction arc. Um, oops, that's not oh, you're almost at Dick Horse. What? <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, so within ones that I've, like, downloaded onto here, um, I don't know if there's anything here that, like, jumps out. I've been thinking about doing Chainsaw Man, but I'm kind of being ornery about it, and I'm not that excited. If you're not that excited about Berserk, I got bad news for you about how Chainsaw Man is just not as good as Berserk, but has the same problems that you're gonna... I did, um, so I started, uh, Akira and Blue Period... I might try and finish those. I I was thinking about Akira. Um, there's a lot of Akira in Lane, I think. Um, and I've read the first volume. I thought it was incredible. Sorry about the sound I just made. Um, I have and, so much shit in Tachi on me. But... Yeah. I, it's like, I've started and not finished Akira so many times that at this point I'm like, one, I'm not going to read volume one again. I've read it like three times. I need to just go through the rest of the series and I need to just do it. I need to not like, like I need to like this week, I'm just going to be reading Akira and then sometimes Nana when I need like a break, you know? Yeah. 
Um, but I can't be bouncing around between six different manga like I have the last couple weeks. Yeah. Um, so a couple other ones that I've been thinking of. I just have so many loaded up on here. One I've been thinking about rereading back, but that's kind of a commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also been thinking about reading the Cardcaptor Sakura stuff, but that's yeah. also a bit of a commitment. Not quite as much, I don't think. Um, maybe I, I don't remember how long chapters are of Beck, but there's, there's a bunch of them. Um, I have thought about reading Citrus. Um, I'm just like looking, oh, I was going to read through some Cutie Honey. That was one of them. Cause that might be fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I recently downloaded, um, Devil Man because I'm like, well, that I could probably knock out Devil Man pretty quick. And like, that will just be a huge, like, hole in my understanding of, like, manga history that I can just, like, patch up in a weekend, you know? Yeah. But, honestly, I feel like the the biggest thing that I'm probably going to do... I just have loaded up so much Yuri on here that I don't know if I'm ever going to read. Um, but I feel like the, the big thing... So, the one thing is I had this thing in my head of, like, I want to read through all of Berlin Alexander plots and watch the... Uh, old movie, the like Fassbender thing, and then the new one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just haven't really made any progress on that. Um, and I'm currently reading through all of Berserk and starting to feel kind of bogged down in some of it. Um, and so I might try to switch to reading that, and then that's going to be kind of a, a undertaking. And so I'll probably just chip away, like. Honestly, the real answer here is I'm probably going to be reading Berlin Alexander plots, and then I'm going to be like, oh, I just like don't want to read like a book book tonight, and then I'm just going to read a little bit of Neighborhood Story mm-hmm. or um, some other early Uzawa Eye stuff because I want to re re reread all of Nana, but I am currently in the process of getting physical copies of it and I kind of just want to wait until I get all of them mm-hmm. and then just read through the physical ones um, a couple other random things that popped up in my head um, while we've been talking um, Goodnight Poon Poon um, I want to read more Asano and um, <clears throat> Dead Demon DDD is another one I've started a couple times and haven't finished so I want to like go read one of his other things to sort of like divert you know yeah um, and then, um, A Cruel God Reigns, which is just, like, a shoujo or possibly Jose, I don't know, um, from the late 90s by, um, Moto Hajio, who is, like, a beloved, um, 70s manga person, like, started in the 70s and just worked for a long time. Um, yeah, I just like stumbled along that the other day and thought it was really good. Also, I downloaded all of Vagabond. That's like a, that's like a, when I decide I'm going to read Vagabond, like that's the thing I'm going to be doing, you know? Yeah. I'm not going to be bouncing around between a million different things like I am right now. I'm going to be reading Vagabond and that's going to take me a long ass time. (laughs) Yeah. But I I think for me right now, I still, when I'm going to sit down and read, comics it's probably going to be berserk or maybe i will like just pick away at like neighborhood story or i'll just like chew through some like a, a tonkaban of kaze-san just because mm-hmm. it goes down smooth um but honestly it's probably going to be like if i need a break from berserk i'm going to watch a movie um 
or possibly I've been having the itch to get back to like, cause there's the, just that English patch for the, um, the persona PSP 2? persona two. Yeah. The, um, what the second eternal one? punishment. Yeah. Yeah. Cause for a while it was like in the, in the U S and English, you would do innocent sin on PSP, which was the first one. Right. And, and then, then you would do eternal punishment, the PlayStation one, but that right. was like, uh, pretty heavily localized. Um, and I, I found someone who did like a patch where they like delocalized a little bit of it where they're like, okay, especially if you're playing this after playing the like PSP one, we're going to make the character names correct to the PSP one. We're mm-hmm. going to like, you know, who some of these other things are like, mm-hmm. um, at this point, changing some of the names away <coughs> from the spell names that just people know from SMT is like more confusing rather than yeah easier. So I was thinking about playing that, even though I have a physical copy of Eternal Punishment because I played it. Yeah, but yeah, so I that's probably what I'll work at. Also, I still haven't finished SMT five, and I just want to. Yeah, I'm like having this itch of like. Oh, I want to play the the Xenoblade games. I know I'm going to pick up Xenoblade Chronicle and remember that I don't like that combat system at all. <laughs> um, I should just watch. I should just look into a little bit more what's the combat like in some of the later ones, and if I think I would vibe with it more. Yeah. Um, and then maybe just watch a Let's Play or something of the. Yeah. The first one, if I don't want to go back to it. But. I've been catching up on um, friend podcasts because. During basketball season, I wasn't listening to any friend podcasts. Um, and then after basketball season, there was like a month or two where I was just listening to like music podcasts and stuff that like, you know, um, I was listening to cocaine and rhinestones and that was like eating up all my time. Yeah. A lot of stuff. Like I was not listening to much abnormal mapping or, or like, Stuff that Friends was making for a little while. So I'm catching up on that. I'm very excited because I'm now... I'm only two or three weeks behind on podcasts now. um, Which means I'm almost to Olivia explaining the entire plot of the Xeno games. Which means that I will be free from ever wanting to play them again. Thank you, Olivia, for doing this service. For me, specifically. (laughs) Uh, She doesn't explain any of Xeno Gears, which is fine. But yeah, that okay. one is a special. So the big thing is like there was that which didn't kind of make me want to play the, the Xenoblade stuff, but also just more made me want to play replay Xeno Saga because mm-hmm. um, that was like the big one that I liked as a kid. But the big thing is doing lane and then also having some of these like I want to play a game again feelings is just like, no, I just need to fucking play the Persona 2 games again because uh-huh. I like those games a lot. And it's like fully in this um i forget the there's like a japanese term for it that i don't know exactly i think it's like translates as like devil culture or something but there's like this Mm. thing in the the 90s um that uh i feel like a lot of like v cinema and everything is kind of operating in this space of um that devil man maybe yeah (laughs) That's earlier, but you know. Yeah. Um, I don't know anything about Devil Man. Yeah. I know there's a spider. I've been warned several times about the spider. 
Did I ever tell you the story of um, the the first? So I kind of knew about Devil Man, but I never seen any of it. And then back in the day in Tumblr, um, I saw this. Uh, you know, there'd just be like aesthetic anime gifts, and it was just one of like this uh girl who was like maybe the mom or the older sister was more the vibe, and then like a little like elementary school kid, and they were just like, it was just gifts of them like doing like cute little like we live at home we're like family stuff and i was like oh that looks like cute and fun um and i'm just like in the mood to like find a random anime and so i sought out what it was from and it was from a devil man where they're at the very beginning and then they immediately get murdered by devil man <laughs> and i was like oh never mind i'm not gonna watch that one i do know what devil man is <laughs> um what are we watching next time I don't know. Um, so we're we're probably gonna have to do another short movie because we're gonna be a little busy. Yeah, we can maybe do, but next Saturday we're going to a Brandy Carlisle concert, and sort of the routine we had the last couple weeks was watch things on Friday, record things on Saturday. That will not work this week or next week, but hopefully we'll be back on track with that soon. So. Let's let's off mic pick a short movie. It's twelve thirty. And... Yeah, it'll it'll be in the episode description. Yeah, I don't want to do this on mic. No, I realized when we hit re- like literally when we hit record, I was like, uh oh, we didn't pick a movie. We'll just deal with it. We'll just deal fine. with it later. Uh, note here. So after we wrapped up the episode, um, we took a few days to talk about some options. Um, and we kind of decided one that we want to do a short movie and also we kind of want to do uh, another kind of more just silly fun movie rather than um, a deeper movie just because we've kind of got a lot going on um, this month and so we debated on a few different options and ended up going with uh, Ricky O the story of Ricky so that's the movie next week um, I don't know we don't always do like a warning like this but um for this one in particular, if you're just unfamiliar with it, maybe look up a little bit about what it is. There's just like very intense hyperviolence and gore, um, where it's kind of beyond some of the normal stuff that might crop up in some of the movies that we talk about. So I just wanted to, to give a little bit of a warning there, uh, just in case that would be something you'd be really sensitive to. Cause it's, it is like over the top, but it's part of the fun of it. It's honestly why it's remembered, um, especially in the West, um, where I, th- I feel like it was more popular than um, in Hong Kong and China. So um, you can definitely find some versions of that online. Um, I was kind of surprised that like Arrow didn't have it, but I think it's because 88 films, um, that's like the number 88. Um, I think they did a big remaster. So, uh, but they're like UK only. So don't have streaming, things like that. But uh, I'll get back to the main episode. Uh, But yeah, that'll be next time. I was maybe going to ask, like, hey, do you want to watch episode 13 of Lane with me? Um, But now it's 12.30. I was hoping to maybe, like, be able to sleep on that last episode before we record tomorrow, but I will probably be coming in hot. (laughs) Yeah. And that's going to just be what it is. Um... Is Okokoro real? Okokoro is real.